together. Our Father, we happily confess that everything that happens is because you ordain it. And because you are good and righteous, everything you ordain is right. So we praise you. We give you glory for your sovereign care over our lives, a care that is never misguided. So teach us, Lord, to to not busy ourselves with things too great for us, but rather to quiet our souls in contentment under your mighty hand. Father, we pray that the truths of your word would give us firm ground, ground beneath our feet, <clears throat> would give us light for our paths and strength to live faithfully. So come help us, shape us, by your spirit into Christ's image, we pray in his name. Amen. A few years ago, the Oxford English Dictionary came out with a list of the 25 most common nouns in the English language. I have no idea how they gathered enough information uh, to make such a list, but they did. Uh, the list included words like day, person, work, But the most commonly used noun in the English language, they determined, is the word time. And this isn't entirely surprising when you think of all the common phrases that we use that that use that word. We talk about doing things for the first time or the second time. If you're late, or if you're not late or, or early, you are on time or in time. We talk about having a good time or a hard time. If you're in trouble, you get a timeout. If you're in jail, you're doing time. It really does litter our language. And then you think of, of, of all the books that you've seen or maybe you've read about managing time. And we can conclude that we are time-oriented, maybe even time-obsessed creatures. And this goes back a long way. You think of all the ways we have contrived to measure time, going back to sundials and hourglasses and Now, atomic clocks. This obsession with time is in part because we can't escape it. It's just part of what makes life what it is. And as we can all attest, it confronts us with our frailty and our finitude as human beings. There is never enough time. We cannot master it. It existed before us and it will go on after us. And one way that we measure time is by uh, the number of days it takes our planet to revolve around the sun. And we are uh, approaching the end of one more of these trips. And it's normal to arrive at the end of the year and to reflect on the year that's ending and start planning for the year ahead. I don't really want to stand up here and, and offer a eulogy on the year 2020. There will be plenty of those made by people better equipped to give them. So I have resisted whatever urge there might be to title my sermon uh, 2020 in hindsight, or hindsight is 2020. But I do want to take this occasion, this last Lord's Day of the year, to reflect on some of what the Bible says about time. And to do that, we will be in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, in the passage that Chris read. 
The last time I was up here on a Sunday morning was about a year and a half ago, and we were in Ecclesiastes 9. So at this rate, we should finish our study of Ecclesiastes around the year 2035, which feels fitting for the book. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15, uh, we'll look at it in, in two parts, verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 15. In verses 1 through 8, we'll look at the seasons of time, and then in verses 9 through 15, we'll consider the sovereign of time. So the seasons of time and then the sovereign of time. Verse 1. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So this serves as an introduction to the poem that follows, and it is sweeping. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This verse basically says the same thing twice. For everything, a season, a time for all matters. This is an all-encompassing truth. Everything has a season. Just a reminder about this book, we are reading the words of Solomon, the king of Israel. And in chapter 1, he told us that he had applied his heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And what he finds is that these pursuits, these aims, aims of pleasure, aims of wisdom, aims of work, when these things are pursued as their own ends, he concludes that all is vanity, all is meaningless. So what we read here in verse 1 of chapter 3 is, this is more insight from his quest. And what he tells us spans the entire human experience. There is a time for all things. And he's not merely telling us the way things are, as if to say, uh, there is a time when these things will eventually happen. happen. He's telling us that there is a right time for all these things. For everything, there is a season. And then from there, he begins this poem that's probably familiar to you. I guess this is the most familiar passage in the whole book. Um, Maybe some of you know the song that was done by the, the birds back in the 1960s called Turn, Turn, Turn on this passage. But before we get into the the content of this poem, just a few observations about it. You'll notice it's seven verses long, and each verse has two lines. There's a couplet within it. So it's 14 lines long, and each line has a contrasting pair, love and hate, war and peace. And in most of these verses, these two lines work together and even help explain one another. For example, if you look at verse 4, a time to weep and laugh a time to mourn and dance. So those two lines obviously go together. So it's 14 lines. Another way to think of that is it's two, uh, two combinations of seven. There's seven verses with a couplet in each. And th- that number seven is significant because it signifies completion, perfection. And this poem, this is not just a random collection of things that Solomon has cobbled together. He's making the point that there is a time for everything under the sun, for the complete human experience. And so what better way to capture that than to use the number of completion? And in these sets, you know, we're given contrasts. They're not always necessarily positive and negative. That's true in some of them. You know, a time to kill and heal, a time to uh, weep and laugh. We know which is preferable in those, but that's not the case for all of them. I think what, what the sets are doing is presenting opposites or extremes 
to represent everything in between. So there's a time to be born and a time to die. But it's not only those two events for which there's a time. It encompasses everything in between them. And the same can be said for the entire poem. And then one last introductory comment. You'll notice that there is no mention of God in these verses. Which is why you might hear this passage uh, at a secular funeral. I actually heard that song by the birds sung at a a non-Christian funeral. Everyone, regardless of belief, can affirm the rightness of what's said and, and recognize the beauty of how it's said. But even though God is not named in these verses, he is assumed throughout. He's the only way these verses make sense. And he's the only way that they're kept, I think, from being rather hopeless. So let's, with all those introductory comments, let's get into the poem. Verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. So right at the start, we're confronted with things over which we have zero control. We did not choose the day of our birth, and most people do not choose the day of their death. But there is a time for both, and God has decreed precisely when those times are, and his decrees are right. There's a time to be born, a time to die, and everything that happens between them. And he goes on, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. So again, we've got one thing that symbolizes a beginning and one that captures an ending. So if you've ever farmed or if you like to garden, you know there is a time to plant and a time to harvest what's planted. There could even be a more violent connotation to this plucking, the way that you might uproot a weed. The point here is that there is a time for both planting and plucking and everything in between. I think another thing that this this pair captures for us is the way that some of these times and seasons are woven into creation. And if we try to ignore them, it will be to our peril. And this makes sense because there is, a, there is a tight relationship between wisdom and creation. Wisdom, Proverbs tells us, was there at the beginning, at, at creation. And it is embedded into its fabric. And we do well to pay attention to its rhythms. And some of this comes naturally to us, right? God has made the night. So what's the wise response to that God-appointed rhythm? Just to go to sleep. It's dark go to bed. He has created the spring. It's the natural time to plant. Proverbs tells us that the ant knows when to gather its food, and on we could go. It, you know, I think it's interesting that one, one consequence of all our technology is that it convinces us that we're not subject to these natural seasons. We can access things online whenever we want. You can go to Walmart 24 hours a day, but it is good and wise to recognize the times that are part of creation. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck. Verse 3. A time to kill and a time to heal. So in Israel, there were sins that warranted capital punishment. There were times when the Lord commanded his people to battle their foes. Those were times to kill. You can even imagine in, in non-human uh, situations when an animal must be killed. There are appropriate times for life to end. And there are times to heal what needs to be restored. And then this line naturally leads into the next one, a time to break down and a time to build up. You know, Solomon, Solomon is a good poet. And part of poetry 
is the use of, of ambiguity. You read a line like this, and it might not be exactly clear what he has in mind, and that's probably intentional because it allows the principle to have wide application. There will be literal times when you need to, to break something down, when you need to do some, some demo. And there will be times when we need to build something. But then there are other situations, other times, maybe a relationship or a job. When you're faced with a choice, do I keep working on this or is this time for an end? Do I heal this or kill it? Do I break this down or build it up? Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. These are self-explanatory. Some occasions call for weeping, some for laughing, some for mourning, some for dancing. One thing to consider, though, with, with this verse is that it takes maturity to understand that other people might be in different seasons or times than you. So it might be time for you to laugh. And so you will need to show patience and sympathy for those who are weeping. It might be time for you to mourn. And those who are sad cannot scorn those who are smiling. So to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice, it requires an edified emotional life that acknowledges the seasons we're in and doesn't require everyone around us to be in that same season with us. To everything there is a season. Verse 5. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. You can imagine having to, to clear a field before you plant something, getting the stones out of the way because they're a nuisance. But then in other situations, you're trying to build a retaining wall next to the field, and you need those stones. So the same object in some settings is a pain, and in other settings it's necessary. There's a time for both, and it takes wisdom to know which is which. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. This makes you wonder if Solomon wrote this during a pandemic. There's a time to embrace and a time to maintain six feet from one another. But even in normal circumstances, it takes wisdom to know when an embrace is what's needed and when someone needs space. And it works with the previous line, doesn't it? Sometimes rocks are needed, sometimes they're not. Sometimes an embrace is called for, sometimes it's not. In verse 6, dealing with possessions here, a time to seek and a time to lose. Like we can understand this. Have you ever lost something and then searched for it incessantly and then just had to come to terms with the fact that the thing was lost? There was a time to seek and then a time to let something go. The next line gives, it, gives us the same thing from a different angle, a time to keep and a time to cast away. If you're a parent of... Young children, maybe you're trying to convince them after Christmas that this is a time to uh, cast some things away. Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. It could be here that Solomon's thinking of times of mourning. There are times when it's right to tear your garments in grief. And there are other times when you repair what's been torn. And like with Job, there was a time for his friends to, to speak and a time for them to keep quiet. It takes wisdom and relational skill to know when to speak and when to be silent. And this was something 
that Jesus displayed to perfection. He knew exactly what to say, when to say it, and there were times when he opened not his mouth. He knew which situation called for which action. And verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So there are things that we should love and things that we should hate as individuals. And then at the level of nations, there are proper times for war and proper times for peace. And blessed is the nation with leaders who know the times. So this is Solomon's poem. It it is strikingly beautiful. It's one of those pieces of writing where the form itself adds to the meaning. You know, life is often rhythmic and predictable on one hand, and complex and unpredictable on the other hand. And this poem combines both the rhythm and the complexities of life all at once. So how do we respond to a passage like this? There are a couple ways, but there are also a couple of wrong ways to respond. I think these would be the extremes. One would be to respond with resignation, to just shrug and say, well, things happen and we can't do much about it. That kind of passive response would, I think, be to miss the point. Same with the other extreme, which I think would say, yeah, all these things might happen, but I'm just going to plow straight ahead and remain the captain of my soul regardless. That kind of response would also be to miss the point. So what, what does a faithful response look like? Well, the first response would be to joyfully recognize the sovereignty of God. He is the one who appoints times and seasons. And he might not be named in this poem, but he fills the entire thing. And he, he is the one who makes sense of it. You know, I, I understand why someone who doesn't believe uh, might appreciate the beauty of these verses, but I don't understand why such a person would like these verses. If you take God out of this, what is it saying? It's saying that there's a time when these things happen, but who is arranging these times? And who is to say that any of these times are the right time? Then we're just subject to some impersonal forces. We'll come back to the idea of God's sovereignty when we look at the rest of the passage. But that's the first takeaway, is to joyfully embrace God's sovereignty. And the second is to joyfully and diligently embrace and pursue wisdom. You know, a lot of what's in this poem requires us to know what the times call for. There are right times and there are wrong times. And while we are not responsible for arranging the times and seasons of our lives, we are responsible to know how to live faithfully in each God-appointed moment. Over in chapter 8, Solomon writes that the wise heart will know the proper time. And so the question for us is whether we can recognize the times and know how to make the best use of them. One reassuring thing in this is that those seasons, times change, God does not. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can pursue him at all times. And then one one last response. If you just kind of scan over the poem, notice how much of what's included assumes the presence of other people. 
weeping and laughing, embracing and withholding, speaking and silence, loving and hating. One way that we order our lives is in relationship to other people. Think about the way that a woman, for example, might in one season be a daughter and a sister, and in another season be a wife and a mother, and a grandmother, maybe a a widow. These are God-given seasons defined by relationships. David Gibson, who's written a great book on Ecclesiastes, he says that the times that God grants are bound to the presence or absence of relationship. The people that we spend time with eventually become the people we spend our lives with. I think about the fact that we moved here in 2009 uh, with the intentions of being here for a few years. So when we joined Kenwood Baptist Church in the fall of 2009, we did not intend to be here 11 years later, and yet here we are. Um, So this is approaching a significant percentage of our lives spent here. And you know, the reality is the people that you spend time with end up becoming the people you spend your lives with. So I think one takeaway from this passage is to observe that and then invest in the people you are spending your life with. It is with them that you will laugh and weep and embrace and speak. So that's the seasons of time. Let's move on to verses 9 through 15 and look at the sovereign of time. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? So quite a change of tone here. And this is not the first time, nor will it be the last time, that this question comes up in the book. This is at the heart of Solomon's quests. Is there gain to be had in pursuing pleasure and wisdom? Or in our verse here, toil. And the anticipated answer is no. And he says as much over in verse, chapter 2, verse 11. If you look over there, just in the previous chapter, chapter 2, verse 11, you'll see what he says. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So no, there is no gain to be had for your toil. The point here is not to adopt a pessimistic point of view. I think he's showing us that the pursuit of gain for gain's sake is the wrong pursuit. We'll see in the rest of this passage, what he wants us to be after is gratitude instead of gain. He wants us to see life not as a series of opportunities for gain, but as one long series of of undeserved gifts. So your time is not for gain. It's a gift. Your job is not for gain. It's a gift. Your talents, we could go on. Verse 10. I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Solomon has been around the block. He has seen what, what makes up the substance of our lives. And there is nothing to be gained. Nothing we can take with us. It all looks like vanity. So what does he conclude? Verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is an incredible verse. 
and it solves whatever kind of riddle you might be left with to this point in the passage. And we've read that God appoints times and seasons to everything there is a season. This verse tells us that everything is beautiful in its time and season. So God is not some cold, impersonal deity. He does what he pleases, and what he pleases is right. Everything he does can be said to be beautiful. This is why we can sing something like, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Now this doesn't, this doesn't negate the reality of suffering. It doesn't mean that hard things are not hard. It means that we can trust that God never makes a mistake. That someday we will be able to say about every moment of our lives that God's purposes in it were right and good and beautiful. But, Solomon says, we don't know what God has done from the beginning to the end. So to say this, to say that he has made everything beautiful in its time, is really to make a statement of trust. We, we don't always see the beauty as it's unfolding, but we can trust that it will be there eventually. So I do hope that as you re- reflect on the year that's closing, you'll keep this in mind. You know, it feels like the year 2020 was so full that everything Solomon listed in his poem happened. There was a time for all of it. And what I have told myself often and what I have told others is that you don't always have to enjoy the process to know that God makes everything beautiful in its time. And so I hope you will keep that in mind as you look to this next year. We don't know the times God has appointed, but we can trust they will be good and right. Also, Solomon says... God has put eternity into man's heart. I think what he means here is that we have a built-in sense and desire even for eternity, for eternal things. You know, Romans 1 tells us that, that every single person knows that God exists. His invisible attributes have been on display since creation. And every person is made in God's image, which means we're made by God to be like God. And he is eternal. So even as we live in time with all of its limitations, we have a built-in sense that life extends beyond death. And, you know, we can numb this sense of eternity by gorging ourselves on worldly pleasures. And we can grow this sense by feeding on eternal things, on the worship of God, on study of his word, on devoted prayer, We want this sense of eternity in our hearts to to grow. And one thing that's clear is that there are times when this sense of eternity gets triggered, even for those who don't know God. The joys of life, I think, can lead people to ask if there's any, any consummation to their joy or if they will always be fleeting. And sorrows, I think, lead people to ask if there's any any answer to life's problems. Last week or a couple weeks ago, Denny posted something, um, this video that Google did, a a year-in-review video, and it's based on the way people have used the search engine this year, and the title of the video for 2020 is, Why? Just the word, Why? I think that is the eternal sense speaking. You've probably heard what C.S. Lewis said about this truth. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, 
the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We have eternity in our hearts. And so remember that as you seek to share the gospel. Every person you meet and talk to has a built-in sense of eternity. He says in the rest of verse 11, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So we have eternity in our hearts, but we don't have access to all that God has done or will do. And that is a good thing because we would be crushed by such knowledge. It is God's mercy that keeps us from knowing the beginning to the end. So what should we do then while we live under the sun? Well, he tells us in verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So this is the response of wisdom. Everything is beautiful in its time. We don't control the times. So there's nothing better than to be joyful, to do good while you live, and to eat and drink and take pleasure in your toil. Then he says, this is God's gift to you. I wonder if you believe that. You know, it's not passive resignation to enjoy life's simple pleasures. It's actually a sign of humility and contentment to enjoy God's gifts. As simple as this sounds, it's only, it's only truly possible for those who know God. Because it's God's people who know the source of lasting joy, the Lord Jesus. And it's only God's people who know what it is to do good, to obey God and keep his commands. We know how to enjoy gifts because we know the giver. We had some friends uh, pass through Louisville earlier this week and stay with us. And the guy's dad, the, the father of our friend, he's been enslaved to alcohol for the last 15 years or so, and so is looking at 6 to 12 more months to live. And this, our friend was telling us how when he was younger, his dad was sober and had two, two great kids, had a healthy marriage, had a great job, drove a, a BMW convertible around. He had the American dream in his hands. But this is exactly what our, our friend said. None of it was enough to satisfy him. And it's because he doesn't know the giver of those gifts. When eating and drinking and work is all that there is, they are ruined. But when you acknowledge God and give your life to him, all these things fall into their rightful place. They are free then to be enjoyed, not as ends in and of themselves, but as gifts from a good God. I was thinking of just of the contrast. J.O. has told me about his grandfather, uh, who is in his 90s, I believe, who loves the Lord and spent his entire career working as a meter reader. And when you know Christ, you can read meters to the glory of God. Apart from Christ, the best the world has to offer is vanity. It's meaningless. With Christ... The simple gifts of work and food and family become filled, overflowing with meaning. There is nothing better than to enjoy these gifts. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. 
nor taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And Solomon told us up in verse 12 something that he perceived, and he's telling us here something else he has perceived, that God's will is final. Whatever God does endures forever. We can't add to it. We can't take from it. Ultimately, everything will have happened because God made it so. At the end of the day, we will have no credit. Even as God uses us to to complete his purposes, there will be no credit for us to claim. And then the rest of this verse gives us an explanation for why God has ordained things this way. God has done it so that people fear before him. If you've read to the end of Ecclesiastes, you know that Solomon's conclusion is that the end of the matter, the whole duty of man, is to fear God and keep his commands. So why is God sovereign? What should our response to that be? It should be to to fear him, to stand in reverent awe before the, the scope of his power and might and wisdom. In verse 15, That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. In other words, there is nothing new under the sun. The things that are now, even as unique as this year has felt, not truly unique. And the things that are to come will be like things that have happened before. So for all the, all the use of the word unprecedented in 2020, it has not been unprecedented. And then Solomon finishes the verse with this enigmatic line. God seeks what has been driven away. The King James says that God requires that which is past. And the NIV kind of says something similar. God will call the past to account. I think that's what Solomon's getting at. And it's actually a comforting thought. He's been telling us that God is sovereign. What's happened has happened. What will happen will happen. But this idea that God seeks what has been driven away or requires that which is past, it tells us that while we will be forgotten, our lives will be forgotten, generations will be forgotten, nothing is forgotten to God. It all stands before him like a shepherd tending to everything that he cares for. And he seeks what has been driven away. And so every wrong, every injustice of the past, the things that have been driven away, will be called to account, will be sought out by him. Every year, the NBA, the Professional Basketball League, gives an award to its most valuable player. And every year, the winner of that award gets up and gives a speech that's filled with just meaningless platitudes. But a couple years ago, I happened to see the speech that was given by, I'm going to try to say his name, Giannis Antetokounmpo, or the Greek freak, as they call him. And he actually said something that was uh, pretty insightful. He was describing the impact that his mother had on him. And he said, when you're a little kid, you don't see the future. If you have a good parent, your parent sees the future for you. And that's exactly right. And so it is with God and his children. And this should form our response to this passage. God is in control. Everything has a time. Everything is beautiful in its time. 
So we should pursue a deep contentment and humility. The kind that's described in, in Psalm 131, where the psalmist says, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. I'm not concerned with things that are too great for me. Rather, I'm like a, a quieted and contented soul. There are things that only God knows, and we ought to rest happily in that truth. Our lot in life is to enjoy him and enjoy his gifts. And if you want to know how to enjoy God's gifts, it begins by receiving his greatest gift, the Lord Jesus. And if you don't know Christ, if you've never bowed the knee to him, let me just invite you to consider him now. You know, God, as we've read, has made everything beautiful in its time. And it was in the fullness of time that God sent his son into the world to be made like us in every respect. And yet he lived without sin. He, he never misused a moment. And the Bible says that at just the right time, he died for sinners. So that if you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins... His goodness will count for you. And then when you die, you won't move from temporal vanity into eternal vanity, but from life abundant to life eternal. You know, being a Christian doesn't change the reality that our lives are subject to time and are filled with monotony and things that we can't control. But the message of Ecclesiastes is the message of the gospel. We are unexceptional people in the scope of history. So what we all ought to do is get over ourselves and trust God. And the sooner we do, the happier and freer we will be. God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord. And so bow the knee to him and get busy enjoying the life that he's given to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we take great comfort and rest knowing that it is you who has arranged our lives and that nothing that you have given to us, that you've appointed to us, has ever erred. You have never made a mistake. And while there may be moments and even extended moments when we can't see uh, the beauty of what you have done, we trust that one day we will. And so, Father, give us humility and give us contentment that comes from knowing we, we are held in your hand and we are happy recipients of your sovereign care. Lord, make us humble enough and content enough to enjoy the gifts that you've given to us. Help us not to view our lives as merely opportunities for gain, but as just a series of gifts to be received with joy. And make us eager, Lord, to extend this invitation to those who don't know you, to those who feel like they are subject to some impersonal force directing their life. You've put eternity into the heart of every person. Give us wisdom to know how to speak the gospel in such a way to trigger this sense of eternity. Make people long for it and find it in Christ.
In whose name we pray, amen.